It's uh, my privilege to be invited into your pulpit. Uh, I'll be using the words pulpit and pew some tonight. Uh, uh, so I'm sitting on our love seat tonight. So it's my pulpit. And I see John Touchstone is in his chair. And uh, so he's in his pew. And uh, Maria and uh, Mark are sitting over our sofa on their pew. And Zeke, as I can see them there in the kitchen in their pew. So very thankful to be invited. Um, would like to express my regrets at the falling asleep of John Lynn. I've known known him from 1973. Mm-hmm. Since 1973, was at, there at the presence in the hospital when his first child was born. His only child was born and remained a friend of mine through the years. And uh, the reality of the Christian church from generation to generation as leaders fall asleep and their Joshua's and Caleb's to take the place Timothy's and Titus to take the place that's happened in generation after generation and generation in the Christian church. And I'm sure with TLTF, that will be true as well as uh, you continue to hear to write division of scripture and, and put that forth to the people that are privileged to listen to you. So thank you very much for asking me. Um, just to give you a little history, a number of years ago, I had realized in my own life, I had slept in some of the deep thinking on regarding the Holy Spirit, and I felt that I needed to bone up on that. And so that started a quest into the usages of the Holy Spirit, the uh, word spirit in the Old Testament. There are 93 occurrences of that in the King James and varied in other versions, Hebrew word ruach. And so we went through all those, and then there's 385 in the New Testament. And uh, we went through all those, developed uh, what we call our inquiry notebook. It was an inquiry into the Holy Spirit, and those 385 uses, we cut out the words uh, that had to do with casting out spirits and then left out the book of Revelation. I didn't feel adequate there yet. Basically, Christ uh, in his uh, position as judge takes place of uh, everything in the book of Revelation and was final periods of time. So we went through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we were looking for just two things. In every verse, what was the Holy Spirit's purpose? And in every verse, what was the evidence, if any, of something happening as a result of that Holy Spirit working in that particular time? So in our inquiry notebook, there's about 65 scriptures from the Old Testament that are pertinent, and we'll you know, honestly, can't go through all those, but we'll cover some of the highlights of the Old Testament, and uh, then we'll we'll look at some of the New Testament things. We ran into a theology problem. I've taught this in public twice. I've uh, taught it on the phone once. Uh, it runs somewhere between 35 and 40 hours, and I believe in first things uh, that in the Scripture you can find out the first principle regarding things. And we knew if we did, when we did it in public, we would run into people who would want to get into the Trinitarian and the Unitarian issue. And I didn't want to do that because the common man, what we were looking for was the purpose of the Spirit working and then the evidences. So uh, no matter what you think theologically of God and Christ and the Spirit, the uh, first thing we must agree on is they're never in conflict with any, 
each other. And so when we run across places in the context where we are not sure of something, no matter whether it's God, the Holy, the Spirit, or Christ, or the giver and the gift, ever how you perceive it, they're never in conflict with themselves. So we can take great assurance as we start to rightly divide the scripture that we will be taught thoroughly and completely about how the spirit works because in Second Peter 1, 3, it talks about that by his divine knowledge, we have everything that pertains unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. So, and then in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God's desires all men will get to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth so that all men being saved is the term from the Bible for being justified. In other words, sins forgiven, coming to a knowledge of the truth. The other word in the Bible for that, which is a lifetime endeavor for us, is called sanctification. And that's power over sin in our lives and to proceed forth with the things of God. And the next significant scriptural word is glorification, where there's no presence of sin at all. In fact, we're seeing the Lord face to face and enjoying our inheritance. The notebook would not, have, the inquiry would not have been possible without the help of, I am not a grammarian, I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I know very little about Hebrew, but I, we were assisted in a complete proofreading of the thing with John and Karen Zika, who both lent their language talents and they're on tonight. And I would like to give them credit for correcting me on certain things background-wise from the Greek language. And, and so thanks, Karen and uh, John, very much. We're going to talk about the two bookends of the Holy Spirit first. Um, so we'll be got starting in Genesis chapter 1. You'll want to turn there or with your phone go there, and we'll start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light, that it was good. And God divided the night from the darkness, and called it the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So the Spirit, as God's agent, starts working, and the first thing that happens is light comes into existence where darkness previously existed. Now, this is not the light of the sun and the moon because that doesn't happen till the fourth day. So you'll want to write down 1 Timothy 6, 16, which talks about uh, the light that no man can approach. That it is, Apparently, it's the Shekinah glory of the Lord. And it functions the same way in Revelation where there's no need for the sun or the moon. So in that sense, you could call it spiritual light. So the most fundamental thing about the spirit in every generation and every day and time until the Lord returns is that it's always shining light on darkness and it's always going to be bringing order out of chaos. The first six, three days of the creation, things are divided from one another. Much like that statement, put off the old and put on the new in the New Testament. There's a separation of things, the seas from the dry land, the heavens from the earth. The last three days, life is planted in those things that have been separated so that it can grow, animal life, plant life. And then in the sixth day, of course, man comes along and God breathes into his nostrils and he becomes a living soul. So wherever you go, whatever church you're in, when we're in your own personal life, and this is what we're really looking for, how to help the common believer, that's you and I, live in the world in a spiritual manner. And there will be sense 
we, you know, we struggle in life sometimes with the things of life, and we all go through these things, it can be a benchmark for you that if, if darkness is starting to show up in your life or life starts to get out of order, uh, you need to be immediately pay close attention. That, that's, your, that's your, quote, flashing light trouble ahead. Now turn to Galatians chapter 5. So that's the first bookend, if you can picture that shelf with books on it. And in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections thereof. I skipped a verse there, that meekness, temperance against which there's no law. The first bookend is the Holy Spirit will always shine light on darkness. It'll always strive to bring order to your life out of any chaos. The final bookend of the Holy Spirit is these seven things. And I call this the pillow talk verse. You lay down at night and you say, you just ask yourself honestly, am I a loving person? Is the love of God evident in my life? Is that fruit there? How's my joy going in my own personal life? Do I actually have joy or am I over in that chaotic, dark, shadowy world? And you can go through all of them. They're all very personal. Am I a meek person? Am I temperate in all things? And then the statement comes, against such there is no law. God doesn't want to limit you having these things in your personal life. So those are the two bookends. So when you think of the scripture again, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God would have all men to be saved. He'd have all men to be justified. When you read, and God would have men come to a knowledge of the truth, which is sanctification. And that word knowledge there means that the truth has a strong grip on you. And the grip is so strong that it affects on a daily basis your thinking, your speaking, and your acting. And Paul explains that if we'll go back to Galatians 2 in chapter 20. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So uh, Dr. Bollinger says there's a figure of speech here with Christ being the first word and the last word. But what's Paul's telling you? He is doing, his goal is to have his life of self and its desires to stop and to live completely for Christ. He's saying love requires sacrifice of something valuable. And the most valuable thing that we have to give every day, as long as we're cognitively sound, the greatest thing we can give of value, the greatest thing we can do is have Christ-like thoughts, Christ-like words adapted to the people we're around and Christ's life actions adapted to the people we're around and to the multiple situations, and to put it quite bluntly, in a very dark and chaotic world. And since Genesis, it has been a dark and chaotic world since Adam and Eve became ungodly and unrighteous. Every generation has been similar in ungodliness and unrighteousness to the one we're living in right now. The one thing that's important to know about the invisible body of Christ, that is those who are truly saved, that one of the great requirements of the pulpit in regards to those people 
is that person in the pulpit, the truth must have a, such a grip on them that it echoes in their life those things that we heard many of us by our first mentor many years ago who said the word of God is the will of God. And the greatest secret in the world is that the Bible is the revealed word and will of God. So that is always the fundamental question in regarding to our belief in the scripture. If we believe this book is just, well, an old and wise book with inspirational things in it, the person that believes that, if they're in the pulpit, they don't deserve to be there because they will eventually lead everybody in the pew astray because of their belief system. So this thing called eldership, and I believe there's some in your ministry and in our church that are on tonight, are elders in church. And your responsibility is to maintain that vital truth that God breathed something. And when he breathed it in the original codicils or as it was recorded by those prophets of old, when he breathed it, it was without error. And 2 Timothy 3.16 we often focus on the words doctrine, reproof, God, you know, all scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction. We often leave out that last phrase, which is instruction in righteousness. The man or the woman who desires to teach, and Paul says in Timothy, to desire to be an elder is a good thing. The man that desires to teach or the woman that desires to teach, if they don't believe the scripture, is without error as it was originally written and rightly divided does great damage em bounds one of my heroes lived in the 1800s i believe talks about the pastor who shares the scripture not rightly divided literally puts shadows on people it's just shadows of what is the truth and does them no good at all it's an impossibility for any man or woman to be in the pulpit without being filled with the Holy Spirit to the point that they believe in the inerrancy of the scripture or they're there as a professional, an educated professional, and that's their job. And so their teachings typically are not inspired by the Spirit. So what they do is teach about Christ, about the woman caught in adultery. They teach about him walking on the water. They teach about him talking with a young rich man. They'll teach about the two great commandments, love God above all, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they will invariably invert that, and the church will put the society and the neighbor before setting your mind on God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's just a little preamble of what we're dealing with in our culture. Our churches, if the Holy Spirit is active and active in them, then those elders or those people who are called, un, we used to call under shepherders, I call them mentors. They too have to be taught in a structured way. And I'd written a note here. I'll struggle a little bit finding all my notes, but one of my notes as an elder in my own life that I have really had to work on is, I will not help you, talking about the men and women that I help mentor, I will not help you remain spiritually mature in, a, in, a rest, in, in an arrested state of development. And then I will tell them, for the person who is really seeking the Holy Spirit-inspired thoughts, the Holy Spirit's desired words, and the Holy Spirit actions, it, it's a, sometimes it's a painful process disciplining the mind at that level where you're always thinking, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, setting aside self, 
and literally trying to live for Christ. I'd like to read that again. I will not help you remain spiritually immature in an arrested state of spiritual development. There are growing pains to any kind of spiritual maturity. So having given that as a sort of a bookends for you, I'd like to now just go to a few scriptures in the Old Testament to, to say very clearly what lies at the base of the Holy Spirit's actions in the Old Testament. And you know as well as I do that the Spirit was upon them. It says it's upon them. It also says it's with them. It says it's in them. But it certainly was not um, an earnest a token, a permanent token, a sealing as we have, as it says in Ephesians. So uh, I want to go back to Genesis 1-2 and just read you the inquiry notes. We're now in our inquiry notebook. We're developing the final notes from the people that commented as we've taught this. But the Spirit's first usage, the first usage, first usage of a word often sets, not always, the standard for how a word is used throughout Scripture. The Spirit brings light to darkness and order out of chaos. All these acts of God that he did on these separate days were miraculous, but they were incomplete in themselves. It took six, six days to complete the task. So too, our spiritual sanctification, our maturing takes time. And, and that's why Paul over in Timothy says, you don't ever give a man or a woman a responsibility when they're a novice. Uh, the reason is the devil will chew them up because a true elder, the best way I know to explain a true elder, and you're, you're aware of this, you see this every day, you're not aware of it until I tell you, but you'll go into office, and some office, and on the door is posted the office hours. <laughs> What's posted on a pastor, teacher, or evangelist, or an elder who's decided to take on the responsibility for God and Christ, for a group of people, it says on that office door, open 24-7. So when God calls a man or a woman, two basic requirements from my point of view through these many years, I just turned 76 a week, a week ago, so two basic requirements. You must believe the Word of God is God-breathed, and you must have the compassion to have the door open 24-7. And the third, and maybe the most important and you'll never know until you're tested by time with this one, is you must be willing to stand alone sometime, regardless of what anyone else thinks, if you have rightly divided the Scripture. And if you're left alone in the room with the rightly divided Scripture in your hand, and others have left, you've made the right decision. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Jane, have you got that? Will you read it nice and aloud? For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This word face could be uh, translated presence as well. When the man is walking by the Spirit, or the woman is walking by the Spirit, and they've made the decision that they're going to be a sanctified person, and that means they're going to set themselves apart to holy things every day before they set them apart to their profession, before they set themselves apart to the stewardship of their family, before they set themselves apart from the, the friends that they may have. Uh, this is being in the presence of Christ every day where we're carrying out that living word by that spirit that's in us. It takes time to develop that maturity. Uh, it's not mechanical. You just can't jump up in the morning and say, well, I'm the, I'm the righteousness of God in him. That's the latter part of 
1 Corinthians 1.30. You just can't do it. It's an all-day endeavor. And the best way I know to explain it is, and all of you are familiar with it, when you're doing your necessary work in front of your computer, you're totally involved, and God expects you to be totally involved to to get your uh, food, clothing, and shelter and uh, provide for you. But once you get off that computer for a second, you sit there, I know what happens to that computer. This picture pops up of your family or a natural scene that you've enjoyed. And that's my example of what should be happening on a daily basis with everybody who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is serious about their sanctification. That the minute I stop selling insurance, and that's what I did for a living, my mind defaults to the spiritual things that I need to be involved with. It may be a family matter. It may be a brother or sister in Christ that I need to advance in the faith, or the Holy Spirit may just say to me, you need to sit down, collect yourself. You've come off the rails a little bit because the Holy Spirit, like a good father or a good mother, chasteneth, but it finally brings about the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So if you can remember, I've, I had a, I've had many mentors. I am an accumulation of old men that have died, old women that have died in my own generation. I've been mentored by people who lived in the 18th and the 19th century, because I've read some of the great vigorous committed people of those times. And I even have younger men now that are coming along. You know, the culture's changing and I'm being mentored by younger men. Um, I was joking with Mark. If anybody out there wants to know how to turn on an old radio, I'm your man. But to set up for these things like tonight and to understand and how to do them, I'm, I'm a little short on that, but God always provides. You should pray for mentors, no matter where you are, no matter what you do. Pray that there will be people around you that are spiritually principled people and willing to stand alone. Go to Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse, we'll have to take out my magnifying glass here. And the thing was good, verse 37, and the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. So there were a lot of people observing this thing that was happening with Joseph. All eyes were on him. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this is, a man to whom the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled, and only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And so in verse 39, Pharaoh is turning over all responsibility to this man called Joseph, who arrives in a quite uh, unspectacular manner into Egypt. And Pharaoh has observed uh, these things that Joseph has done, and he calls, says there's none so discreet and wise. And this word discreet means to be wary and discerning. But one of the great qualities of the Holy Spirit is wary and discerning. Now, the bookend at the end of the Holy Spirit is the fruits of the Spirit. It's not the manifestations of the Spirit. The manifestations of the Spirit are an entirely different thing than the fruits of the Spirit. So what you're seeing in Joseph is that discernment, that discerning, and wariness, and what we would call word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits. The manifestations and the fruits are entirely different. 
the fruits are for your personal life. Now, as a part of my personal testimony, I've had two genuine miracles, observable miracles in my life, but I still mature, have to mature. I don't know exactly how to say this, but when God does a miracle for you, when, there's, where it, when there is a sign, miracle, or wonder, it's a wonderful blessing, but you have to live past it. You can't live on that, and the scripture would document that. So here in Genesis 41, the Spirit is seen at work by those outside the faith. The Spirit is an obser- is, can be an observable witness in your own personal life, and, and that comes from your thought life of spiritual things and your words and your actions in the marketplace of life where you are around. It wasn't until around AD 50 that the books of the Bible started getting written and Paul's epistles pretty much preceded the gospels. So when Christ appointed these 12, the 11 plus Matthias to carry out the operations of the spirit and teach the truth and, and the scripture says, they fellowshiped around the apostles' doctrine. That was first breaking of bread and fellowship and prayers. For 50 years, the dissemination of the scripture was in the hands of the 12 and the disciples that they taught as they reached out across the world. Now, Paul comes on the scene. He starts writing. The early church was reading what we call the Old Testament. They called it the Septuagint. But the early church was reading the Septuagint and probably reading Paul's writings before they read the Gospels. When the Bible was put together, and this is so very important to understand, the, in the, the Gospels are a beginning showing the earthly life and the Lord and Savior ministering to Israel. And then the epistles that are, are written are talking about the ascended and glorified Lord himself. So the power of the Spirit is so significant that during those 50 years, you see, the Lord was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he was working in the hearts and the minds of our first early brothers and sisters back then without the aid of a Bible like you have sitting in your lap, Exodus 31. So it's discreet and it's wise. It'll always be discreet and wise. I'll be saying this time and time again. I hope I get invited back to do more sometime. It's always wary. It's always discreet. It cares about you personally. Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord and Savior, and that's what he is. There is an absolute dearth of, there's an absolute huge lack of information in the denominational church today of speaking of the accomplishments of the ascended and glorified Christ that are revealed in Paul's letters, Peter's work, and John's work. And that's such a shame because it's it's there in Ephesians particularly where we learn we're holy and without blame. We're adopted. We're forgiven. We have an inheritance. We are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We have Paul desires that we have wisdom and prudence and everything, good thinking, that discreet, wary, discerning, spiritual, biblical mind. And then he closes that doctrinal section with a prayer that you might understand the great power of God. And God has given the ascended and glorified Christ all power and authority. He is interceding every day personally in your life. That's why I get back when you're teaching people, You don't just teach them about Christ. 
you teach them how to know Christ. You tell them that love of God in Christ requires a certain level of discipline to get rid of self, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. It takes a certain amount of discipline on a daily basis to coach that mind and to require it to think certain things so you'll be an effective witness in the world. 31 and starting in verse 1, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and silver, and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them and and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I behold, I've given with him this other gentleman, the son of this other gentleman, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I put wisdom that they make, may make all that I have commanded thee. So here is a spirit of wisdom and understanding is given to this man, Basileo. But the other thing that's given are people to help him. Uh, finish the task. And we found that an astounding thing in our church. Um, if we're all here, there's probably 35 of us. And if we need something, we make an announcement. Uh, we need somebody to handle such and such. And we ask them to pray about it and get back with us. And without exception, when we handle things that way and some God calls somebody to do something like Basileo, then they're called to that task and they do it well. We don't just pick somebody and say, you do this for you to do that, just because they have a talent in the world. So Exodus 31.3, our notebook reads, it's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And by the way, those two words are used 170 times in conjunction in Scripture. Pardon me? 117. 117 times in Scripture. It's a revelation. It's spiritual information for you, and it's the highest form of reason. The Scripture, rightly divided, is the highest form of reason. Now, this is... um, a crucial point, particularly for an elder, and so I'll just share my own particular experience with you. I have my own opinions about things. I'm sure you do too. There are certain things in Scripture I don't understand, but they're clear. My opinion differs from them, and I'm instructed to set aside my opinion for the truth, because no matter what my reasoning is to my opinion, the Scripture rightly divided or the Spirit working in me is the highest form of reason. It's the highest form of intellect you'll ever reach. There is no promise in Scripture that your intellect and your faith will be joined together properly. In fact, there are warnings that knowledge puff us up. So the elder of all people, in regard to these fundamental things in the Scripture, must always be setting his opinion aside. He doesn't have an opinion and go find Scriptures to document it and teach it from the Scripture. That's abusing the people in the pew. If you ever teach anything like that, and I do on occasion, I say, I need your help seeking out the truth on this matter. And interestingly enough, you will find people come out of that church and will help clarify things for you, and you may help clarify things for them. So these qualities of the Holy Spirit, understanding and chapter 31, knowledge and workmanship, But be assured, if God calls you to do something, you're going to have to have the conviction to do it. And you may request others to help you 
but don't ever forget that it's primarily your responsibility when God calls you to do it. Our next scripture in the Old Testament is Numbers 11. Got that, James? Will you read it loud and clear? Numbers 11, 16 and 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. That's correct. And, and that's one of the primary fundamental things of the old te of the Holy Spirit is to help bear burdens. Christ learned obedience by the things he suffered. There is a real world out there that any sensible Christian can realize where people are struggling. In the church, by the way, and among the pagans outside the church. You could walk up and down your street and go in. If everybody was honest, everybody would tell you what they're struggling with. Christian struggles too. Christ learned obedience by the things he struggled with. Staying focused in thought, word, and action. Uh, that makes me think of John 4, 34. Let's go there. The spirit sometimes, the uh, Christian sometimes traps themselves in a corner thinking that they're the only ones, they're the lone ranger that is going through struggles in this life. But you walk right across the street to the best pagan, the best unbeliever you ever found, and he is battling the same things because the devil is no respecter of persons. We are the only people walking the earth, the truly saved man and woman, and even past that, the one who is vigorously trying to sanctify themselves and come to a knowledge of the truth. Unless there's just a miracle or phenomenon of some kind, it's that person who's working on that sanctification, that Holy Spirit inspires them, it's strength, and it takes care of that situation. May take care of it in the day, may take care of it instantly, that happens on occasion or over time. But John 4, and they had asked him some questions, and Jesus said to them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. This is one of my scriptures that I use for my everyday life. I adapt it to Mike. Mike's job is to, to do the will of God and to finish what I've been called to do during my mortal life. My prayer is the Lord returns. But as I told somebody the other day, I can tell you at age 76 that life is short, period. So you have a certain number of years to come to a knowledge of the truth. I didn't even hear about walking in the spirit till I was age 20. I never walked into my home and my mother said, your father and I were reading Philippians 2.12. Uh, sit down, Mike, we need to talk about that. I think it's gonna be important for your spiritual growth. I, that never happened in my family. Those of you that have grown up in a Christian family, and I mean a vigorous Christian family who believes the scriptures are inerrant, and you've been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or if you're a parent and doing that right now, or you're a grandparent helping do it with your grandchildren, you are very blessed. So this Numbers 11, 16, and 17 strengthens to bear burdens, and that's one of the things that a church is meant to do, we're to bear one another's burdens. That's gonna be physically, that's gonna be emotionally, that's gonna be spiritually. Judges chapter three, starting in verse nine, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. 
and the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel and went out to war and the Lord delivered the, this wonderful king from Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed against this king. And then the result, here was the result, and the land had rest 40 years under this uh, gentleman who judged Israel. One of the requirements of all the prophets and the kings when they were installed was that they would do judgment and justice. And uh, this judgment is a very important part of the, the Christian walk. The Holy Spirit is going to chasten you on occasion. It will never condemn you on, in, on any occasion but uh, it will judge you and say, you don't need this in your life. It may be, um, where's the scripture chain on the weights and sins that do so? Hebrews 12, 1, the weights and sins that do easily beset us. There are certain things in our life we need to get rid of. They're just weights. They're not sins. They're just a drag on you. Other things are sins. We know from Romans 3, 23, last verse, that we're continually sinning and falling short of the glory of God. So we have these weights and sins. They come upon us at different times. We're like everybody else. We have valleys and we have mountaintops. And the great art of the faith is to have an active, sanctified life where you're asking yourself every day, is, am I carrying through with my prayer life? Am I thinking Ephesians things that I'm holding without blame? Are my words in line with what my Lord would be pleased with, the ascended glorified Christ, and are my actions the same? And you may be assured that every day he will intercede with you. That spirit is his agent to encourage you and move you along. So here that our notes from the inquiry, the spirit makes godly judgment possible. Spirit's instruction comes first, then judgment comes second. Spiritual judgment is a wonderful part of our lives. God offers every avenue of mercy to each of us in our daily life and everybody's life regarding salvation before judgment falls. He's a very gracious God. One of the scriptures that we didn't, when Jane read a minute ago, we didn't read the last part, said he had heard their weeping and he had came to their assistance. So those are some of the things in the Old Testament. There's a, another one we'll look at in First Samuel and in verse 6. And then when it came to pass, when they were come, and pass when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. And so that's always uh, God's method. He's always looking on the heart. David in the psalm says, You know, give me a clean heart. And that's one of those fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? That the whole, I, it's hard to understand because people have, the church today is just shot through. If the Holy Spirit's working, there are going to be tremendous signs, miracles, and wonders. In reality, whenever there's a true sign, miracle, and wonder, it's observable and undeniable. You could just write that down. Peter and John at the beautiful gate of the temple. It's absolutely undeniable what happened there. And if you had one in your life, it was absolutely undeniable. That kind of focus off on the manifestations and being seeking those signs, miracles, and wonders takes you away from the personal. If you don't watch it, it takes you away from the personal nutrition of the fruits of the Spirit that God gives you so you'll have a contented life. I, you know, just you, your life being 
full of joy and peace is important to God. He does not want you being a witness when you're full of fear or there's some darkness and chaos going on in your life. He wants that gone in your life. And judgment is required of you and me. And it is serious spiritual business. When God tells you, quit drinking so much. God tells you, stop being angry so much. God tells you, in essence, what he's saying to you is, if you stay unclean in this area and don't take care of this area, you're not going to grow spiritually. And you can have REV tax to your name and you can have enough initials to make the LGBT people ashamed. You can have enough initials at the right side of your name that says you're the godliest man in the world. You'll never advance one step in the faith until you accept God's judgment regarding things you should put away. When you accept God's judgments on things, when he says for you to sit down, you're too caught up in things, you're spiritually missing it. But the wonderful moments are when the judgments, when you've taken care of those judgments that are hindering you, the weights and sins, because he's a loving father and the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed you from all unrighteousness, he's going to call you to do something and go forward. And that's where those fruits of the spirit are that you start, they just start popping out in you. You sit down one night, honestly, sometimes I sit down one night and say, gee, I am, I am joyful and peaceful tonight. And I've had other weeks when I've struggled and I've sat down, I have no peace right now at all. And somebody asked, one, Jane asked me, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, honey. And I'm just chaotic on the inside and I'm not addressing that thing that I need to take care of. You know, not ashamed to admit that we're all in that boat. That's real Christianity. So obedience is one step at a time. There's this, these things of judgment. Judgment is a wonderful word, and obedience is a fabulous word in Scripture because they're the keys to unlocking the sanctification staircase. That's the way I actually picture it in my mind. I take care of one thing. I put one thing away. That allows me to step up one step again. I've matured a little. I'm, I'm maturing in the face of my thoughts, my actions. Uh, my words are are coming in line with scripture. I, I get another chance to be obedient. I take another step up that stairway. Our whole life is spent in that sanctification process of setting ourselves aside as holy men and women every day. Matthew chapter three. So to summarize what you get from an Old Testament, if you just want to just is beware of darkness, beware of chaos in your life, notice it. And, and be aware of it and, and, and start seeking to take care of it. Know that the Holy Spirit is going to judge you right where you're at. Never condemn you. Remember that. Going to ask you to ask for forgiveness. Going to ask you to sit down. or going to ask you to move forward. That's those three things. And they're all tied up together. Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 11, John the Baptist speaking says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with, there's no article there, panumahagion and with fire. And then comes verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable heat. So there's two things here. Uh, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and Ephesians says we're sealed with it, correct? But then when he's speaking to Israel, he also says he's going to clean his floor up. He's, there's going to be some fire, which is always a part of judgment in Scripture when fire is mentioned in the right context. It's about 
judgment. God is a consuming fire, things like that. So here is this, this, this twofold process of the Holy Spirit uh, moving you forward. And part of that moving forward is the burning up of other things in you. you know, there's all sorts of scriptures about this, you know, uh, casting down every imagination, putting off the old, putting off the new. Uh, Luke chapter four, uh, 14 and 49, I mean, 24, 49, you're all aware of that one where it talks about the Holy Spirit's coming. And I really want to address this with you to the best of my ability. They had been witnesses, he talks about uh, in the verse 47, and he's uh, Luke 24, 49. And he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. I sometimes regret that uh, this word was translated from the Greek power. Now, I know it's dunamis, I believe, here. In the West, in the Western world, uh, being dynamic, a dynamic motivator, the dynamo, big things. You know, the West is the biggest tall, the biggest building, the biggest pumpkin, if you're in the rural area. I would much rather translate it spiritual ability in anything. When that spirit at your day of salvation comes into you, you have the spiritual ability to do what he's called you to do in your mortal life. The, the catch is you've got to be around a mentor leads you to a knowledge of the truth. And that's where the elder in the church functions. I'm living a living example of men and women who cared about me for God and Christ's sake. And they taught me those scriptures. And as they taught me those scriptures of coming to a knowledge of the truth, they even, some of them even taught me I might have to stand alone. And later in life, they were the ones that left me to stand alone. Mm -hmm. Surround yourself with the finest spiritual people you can find. If you're eldering a church, raise them up honestly. Don't, don't let them think that the Holy Spirit is always doing the magnificent big things. The first thing he's concerned about is the personal fruit in your life, that you have peace and joy, you're temperate, you're good, you're loved. I will tell you personally, when I became a Christian, I heard, heard everybody talking about love, and I felt no love really for anybody. I just didn't have that oozy-goosy feeling. That was my mother's words, you know, for, for love. And I was reading First John. Maybe, Jane, you can look it up. But uh, I just read one night. I was in Ohio in a barn, and I read one night, and you know you love the brethren if you keep the commandments. Well, that settled the issue for me. It allowed me to live honestly with people according to the scriptures. So even to this day, that was a seminal moment in my life where the Holy Spirit was working. I know I love the three people in this room that are with me physically right now simply because I keep the commandments with them. And I know if they keep them with me, that they love me. Part of my testimony is I got so far off the rail one time in my life as a reverend that my whole family sat down with me and I knew they loved me because they weren't going to let me stay off the rails. So that's why I really get frosted when somebody refers to the church as the community of faith. It is not the community of faith. It is the body of Christ. We are all joined together to the ascended and glorified Christ. And my favorite analogy is it's like we're all connected to the same IV. And if any, when Paul talks about when one member suffers, we all suffer. Or when one member joys, we all joy. 
I think of my life as an elder or a reverend, but more importantly, just as Mike, that I am joined to him. It's mentioned over 200 times in scripture, whereas Christ in you is mentioned about 10 or 12 times. It's implied other places. But the emphasis is we're in the body. He's the head. He's the director. We're all joined together by the Holy Spirit. It's like this huge IV that's running through me, even in my brothers in Nigeria this morning, this night, who are suffering terribly. And that brings me back to that one of those first scriptures we talked about, and that was Second Peter 1, 3. No matter the culture you're in, Christianity has proved that it can live in any culture and survive, even if it has to meet in private, because it has everything that pertains to life and godliness in it, in any culture or any time, and no other faith has that. Other faiths have to be predominant in the political world to survive. They have to be in charge of everything. Christianity can survive in those cultures. Christianity can survive in a democratic republic like we are, we hope, and it continues to be. But that's at the kernel of that whole thing. So I wish this power from on high, when it came upon you, is for the little things, the in-between things, and the great things. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John 5, 3, as you know the brethren, if you keep the commandments. And by the way, you don't have to keep them rough with people. You know, I have people come to me in terrible shape. That's not the time to fuss at them. That's the time to give them the scripture that's true with the compassion that's needed. And there are other times, you know, you do fuss. At least us with four children, you did fuss. So... (laughs) Verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, that ye receive power. There's that power again. You're going to receive every spiritual ability you need. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And that commandment is a first thing commandment. It, it, it doesn't go away because of dispensational truth. We are to be witnesses. And here, here I believe is... is is one of the great keys to witnessing. You know, in every culture, we keep God and Christ first, but, but because of the cultures, we, you know, we don't change the scripture at all. But I'm, I'm witnessing to a gentleman right now who's shared with me some problems he's had and the marriage is broken up and he's very angry. I didn't deal with his anger at all. I just sat there and said, God raised a man named Jesus Christ from the dead to help you with this. Are you interested? I just put off for him. Uh, for him, I was led to put all the bacon on the pan. There is ascended and glorified Christ that can help you with this because apparently nothing else could help. Uh, would you be interested? And he's promised me he'll come to fellowship. He hasn't showed up yet, but I've done my job. Ephesians chapter, I believe it's four. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of, it should better translate, worthy of the calling wherewith you're called. And of course, you find out in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, you're calling, don't you? You read back through those, you're holding without blame, you're forgiven, you're adopted. Adopted means you're one of first rank in that body of Christ. You have certain privileges, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, but you are created unto good works. So you're to walk worthy. You're to remind yourself that you put that on in your head every day, you know, I'm I'm going to walk worthy in thought, I'm going to walk walk worthy in words, and I'm going to walk worthy in deed. You just start developing that great thing that all the 
people in the scripture that stand out like David. You're meditating on those things when the mind is not involved with that which is, involves your self You're getting your food, clothing, and shelter together. And then in chapter 5, he said something similar. Be therefore imitators of God as dear children. These are those classic practical scriptures, casting down every imagination, putting off the old, putting on the new. The flesh is always going to challenge you until the day that the Lord returns and you're glorified. Justification, you remember, is sins forgiven. Sanctification is power over sin. Glorification is the absence of sin. But there's always going to be a challenge in life as long as you've got your cognitive stuff together. Watchman Nee had a female missionary when he, that led him to, to his start and beginning in the faith. No matter what you think of Watchman Nee, theologically, he changed China and was a great evangelist in his day and time. But he asked this female missionary, I don't know if anybody even knows her name, how she seemed to be able to stay so calm in the midst of a hellish environment where food, clothing, and shelter were the primary objectives of everybody every day to get together. And you know what? I wrote the quote down, and we'll close with this tonight. She said to him, this is my prayer. Oh, God, grant me a complete and unvarnished revelation of where I stand in conformity to my Christ, the living Christ, the ascended Christ. Oh, God, grant me a complete and unvarnished revelation of where I stand in conformity. And I would change it to the ascended and glorified Lord. And that maybe you will adopt that into your prayer life. And I will tell you the answers start coming. Stop this. Sit down, shut up and listen. Go forward. Stop doing this. Sit down. Be quiet. Listen to me. Go forward. And then the things get accomplished because you're listening to that still small voice. Father, thanks for the privilege to speak tonight your word. There's no greater privilege on this earth than to magnify the ascended and glorified Christ, who is our Lord and thought, word, and deed. We thank you for giving us to him so that we might have joy and abundance in our life, that the fruits of the Spirit would be evident and thankful that those manifestations of the Spirit that we have will come to us by your, by Christ's sovereign will into our life. And they will take them up and we'll make the judgment that we need to be convicted about certain things in our own personal lives to get rid of, to sit, and to go forward. And we pray to our Father in the ascended and glorified Christ Jesus, Lord of glory. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for coming along. What a privilege to speak with you. Hope to speak with you again. Then someone said Jesus loved me, said he would save me, he'd come and live inside of me. Said he would help me, he would do it for me, supernaturally. So now I'm walking in the Spirit, talking in the Spirit, singing a song of praise. Praying in the Spirit, trusting in the Spirit, doing what comes naturally. Yes, I'm praying in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit.